Well, hi everyone, and welcome back to Crosswires. It's James here, and today's episode, we're going to be taking a little bit of a deeper look at why retro, why people are interested in retro, because we've done a few episodes about different systems, and in fact, uh, one of my guests today has been on the show before to talk about the Amiga, but I wanted to take a little bit of a look at, you know, why it's so interesting, what it is, and maybe some of the fascination. So, would you please welcome back to the show, Dan Wood, and our new guest, both from the Retro Hour, Ravi Abbott. Hey, James. Hey. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for, uh, for jumping on. And Ravi especially, I think we should probably say, due to a miscommunication on my part, I hadn't actually got Ravi scheduled in. <laughs> and Ravi has very kindly taken a break from ironing in his shorts <laughs> to come and record with us today. That's it. It's a very hot day here. So, yeah, I was just trying to get through the ironing. <laughs> and that's Ravi's favourite pastime as well. So for him oh, to God, uh, no. you know, make an excuse and come <laughs> off it, it's uh, pretty hardcore. It's quite oh, retro wow. ironing, isn't it? Oh, I like that. What have you got? A Commodore? <laughs> uh, one of one of the coal ones um, <laughs> that you heat up. Oh, my nana's still got one of those somewhere in my house. It, they are fascinating. In fact, actually, no, she's got she's got. Do you remember when irons used to have like really chunky, like almost corduroy cords? Oh yeah, mm. yeah. And uh, it was on like the 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 wire was like wrapped with material as well. Yes, exactly. That's what she had for years and years, and it started to frame. My granddad had put, like, electrical tape around it and, you know, done various little hacks. Anyway, we're not here to talk about ironing. We are here <laughs> to talk about retro. So before we start, you both run ret- the Retro Hour podcast, and, Dan, you did tell me the last time we spoke how long it's been going, but do you want to give a, a little bit of an introduction to yourselves and to Retro Hour, just so people know, you know, who we're talking to and, uh, you know, get excited? Yeah, well, I think what we've been going now, seven and a half, is it seven, seven and a half years? Yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. which is crazy. It'll be, yeah, I think eight years in January. And yeah, it's a weekly podcast, it comes out every Friday. The idea of it when we first began was really to not only kind of represent the the British gaming scene and technology scene a bit more in terms of retro. Because there were a lot of other podcasts out there, but most of them, um, like Retronauts, shows like that, tended to cover it from the American perspective. So you've got a lot of stories about you know, the NES and the Atari 2600, not so much about systems like the Amiga. So that was one thing that we wanted to kind of readdress that balance a little bit. But also, to because um, our show, not only do we do kind of a roundup of the news that's been happening in retro over the last week. But the second half of the show is an interview section where the idea is that we get on a, a veteran of the industry. So that could be, you know, we've had a uh, former CEOs and presidents of companies on, we've had uh, guys that did graphics for games back in the day. We've had programmers, musicians from all these different companies that made the games that we grew up playing. So the idea was to really find out kind of, you know, from the horse's mouth, what went into the creation of these games that we, played as kids really and to kind of get the story of the industry from the very beginning up to around around 20 years ago that's kind of our cut off point around the year 2000 yeah when we originally started doing it we thought yeah we'll get a guest on every week that'll be easy uh, seven and a half years later we're still managing to get guests on every week but we probably didn't realize how ambitious that was when we first began but luckily it's uh, it's continued also and and it's great i know you've you've had some great guests obviously we share a guest uh in that we've both had Stu cambridge on the show and mm. Stu is just such a nice guy to work with he really is now am i correct oh is it dan vincent who we've had on the show recently to talk about desktop publishing we were talking about Stuart chaffee from the computer chronicles correct me if i'm wrong you guys have had him on the show yeah uh, yeah we have yeah yeah that, that was a really good score 
Dan was really, really into Computer Chronicles. Like, I, I only saw Computer Chronicles once it came online. I, I wasn't aware of it, but then there was lots of old episodes that you could kind of go through. And I was like, wow, this is really like a turning point. Because, you know, I, I don't think it was actually rebroadcast in Europe. We had our own uh, kind of shows like, uh, uh, was it Computer Live and uh, Tomorrow's World and stuff like that. Yeah, because it was obviously a very big show in America. And I'm the same. I kind of discovered it when it came. Originally, they're on archive.org. For, I think they're on YouTube now as well. Obviously, Stuart, I mean, he presented that show. I think it started in like 1980. So it was kind of right there at the start of the microcomputer boom. And, you know, he's very well placed, you know, in Silicon Valley. And it's really is a time capsule kind of looking back at all of those early episodes and seeing how the computer revolution kind of grew from the start. So, again, I mean, Stuart was kind of documenting it as it happened so it was really interesting to get his perspectives and you know his memories of doing the show and uh yeah obviously gary kildall as well who some of your listeners might be familiar with was a co-host of it um and the founder of the the cpm operating system bit of a tragic tale you know he passed away when he was quite young but it was also interesting to hear kind of Stuart's perspective on kind of his war with bill gates and microsoft and kind of why the market didn't go CPM's way and his memories of working with Gary. So, yeah, I really enjoy having Stuart on. He's, you know, definitely a, a figurehead in the uh, the early computer industry. Yeah, and I think I echo that with in terms of the Computer Chronicles. I don't remember watching it growing up, but I certainly remember something similar. I mean, I, so we had cable. We had Bell Cable Media, which then became NTL which then eventually became Virgin Media, but we had analog cable. Mm. And there was a one channel, the Jones Computer Network, and it had loads of old, like, oh, well, not old, but it had loads of computer programs. And I just seem to, I have a vague recollection of the Computer Chronicles and, and another vague recollect, recollection of an early Leo Laporte show. But I grew up, as I've taught previously, I grew up within Amiga, but I missed out on so many of the earlier uh, developments in tech and in computing. And I, it's really, for me, retro is really interesting to learn about that history. And I think the one thing that's always still stuck with me is, you know, I think we can be proud somewhat as British retro fans that, you know, one very popular computer over here, the BBC Micro and the whole Acorn line, well, we can trace back the roots of every mobile processor to those systems because of ARM. It's, uh, yeah, I think it was called the Screensavers, which was the uh, early Leo Laporte show. But That's yeah, it, yeah, the Screensavers, yeah. that was, that was a, a really kind of experimental one as well. Yeah, I think it's really important. Like when we, when we did the podcast, as Dan was saying earlier, like the time period of computing, the developments have been so fast that there's a lot of stuff that kind of gets lost, you know, and especially like the British systems and, uh, all of the obscurities we had and like all the weirdness. And I think it's really important to kind of cover that stuff. And uh, yeah, even just seeing like footage from like five or 10 years ago, like, you know, you look at the history of cinema and it took so long to go to sound and then so long to go to color, you know, and uh, it's just computers. It's it's like lightning (laughs) compared to that, you know, how fast it's gone. So uh, it's really important to kind of just get all those stories and, uh, even even watch some of those older shows. I, I do remember Screensavers and had a, an amazing episode, which was uh, Kevin Mitnick, who was the uh, most notorious hacker in history, and he was banned off using the internet during the days of Mosaic and the early browsers. And then they were like, right, Kevin, you have to go on the internet now. Your, your, your ban has been lifted by the courts. 
and uh, he hadn't even like Googled his own name or, well, I think it was Yahoo back then, but he hadn't done a vanity search or anything. And he did that live on the TV and he was like, what are these pop-ups and stuff? It was just absolutely amazing. Yeah. And the webs, the webs come so far. I mean, you know, we, you know, we've, I think back to the early days, you know, it says of Mosaic, my first experience was I, even back in the day, I was much more of a Netscape fan than an Internet Explorer fan. Oh, same, yeah. Yeah, me too. Like, I, you know, have me being, you know, me, I had all my email in. Was it Netscape? What? Oh, because was it Composer? That was their suite they released, wasn't it? I think with Netscape 3, when you could actually make websites and everything in it as well. It kind of, yes. for my case, it got a bit bloated around that era. I must, I must admit, it kind of slowed down my machine, but... Yeah, I was a big fan of Netscape. I miss a lot because Netscape morphed. To, well, when I say morphed. There are traces of Mozilla. Mozilla, I think, started was the open source side of Netscape. Uh, yeah, it kind of it was it was the Mozilla project that came out of Netscape. And like thinking about that, you know, we're one of the generations that barely had mobile phones and barely kind of had the internet as well. We we really didn't have the internet. It just arrived. But the generation before us wouldn't have had you know, home computers, it would have been a, a brand new thing for them as well. So it's really like each generation's getting these kind of technological advances. But I really do think the time that we were in with the internet, that was a real, real big change. I think it's a lot bigger than, say, social media and stuff that's happening now uh, with the next generation. Just the whole idea of the world being unconnected and then connected together is just it, it, it's insane when you think about it yeah well the last generation i suppose who had the say an analog childhood and then a digital adulthood yeah that's it yeah absolutely and it, and it does show you see all you know i i always hold up my parents as an example but my parents digital things don't quite come as naturally mm. to them as, as we would maybe to us things like it was always me who had to program a video recorder when we went on holiday that was an art. That was programming the video recorder. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. And and I mean, I remember when Video Plus came along, and like, yeah, the numbers. <laughs> I don't know if Video Plus was Video Plus a thing outside of the UK. It was very interesting how that worked. That's for a whole different episode. That's. Let me ask you guys this. Obviously, I know Dan. Your we know your first machine was a. Commodore Plus Four, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So you were firmly in the Commodore route, but Ravi, I you'll have to forgive me. I'm not really sure of your origin story. What was your first sort of introduction to computing? We had we had a kind of thing where my dad was like, and he still is. He's he's the pusher of technology, so he'd always embrace the latest technology, even if it was broken. Um, he'd still embrace it. So he had one of those mobile phones that was, you know, a, a side case that you had to carry and have a mobile phone on there and stuff. And he's always always pushing it. Even today, he's still got, like, the latest stuff, but it's it's a bit chaotic because, you know, it's hard for him to kind of get on with a lot of the new stuff. Always has been. But um, with me, it was the Amstrad. So uh, kind of coming from the, like, Indian background, there was a lot of stuff about accountancy and business and stuff like that. And the Amstrad was a machine that all my uncles uh, got my mum into. And they were like, you know, this has WordStar on it, which was the big word processor back then. And uh, my mum had kind of abandoned the machine later on. So it was a, I think it's a 1510 or it's like a PCW. It's the one after the PCW, the kind of desktop MS-DOS clone. Oh, yeah, the PC 1510. Yeah, I think it was 1510. It was a number combo like that. Um, yeah, was that the one which had dual floppies? Yeah, but it was, um, you know, five 
5.12 inch or the big, the big fat floppies, basically. Yeah. yeah. The ones that were actually floppy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The yeah. ones that were actually floppy. And that machine was like, it was just given to me. So it was like the computer in the house, you know, and they'd moved on to, to other machines and stuff. My dad had an Amiga um, 2000 upstairs and stuff, but I had this old machine and I, I, I remember playing Missile Command on there. And then I think I had a few upgrades in there. So I managed to push it to like a really early version of Wolfenstein on there, which was pretty awesome. Um, but that was like a DOS compatible uh, machine as well. And yeah, that was that was my kind of roots coming through the like word processing world and thinking, wow, I can actually do something different to this. And that was really when word processing was like, you know, if you had to do italics and stuff, you'd select it with a color and then that, and you'd only see the output once it was printed afterwards. But there was a whole thing about electronic typewriters as well, which was a, another thing where you had typewriters with little LCD screens, you know, lots of people, cause my, my mom did a PhD and stuff. So she was writing her PhD on these like electronic typewriters. And it's, it's really mad if you think about it now. And, uh, a lot of people were doing that kind of education and uh, word processing on these machines and accountancy as well was a was a big kind of thing. And that would have shook up a lot of small business being able to do your accounts on computer rather than paper and have you know electronic records. Yeah, yeah, because there'd always be somebody you'd always have a an old lady on the street or somebody who knew maths pretty well that would be like the accountant for the area and you know the smaller business and. And would would handle the books, but um, I guess a lot of people kind of uh, suddenly that changed, and uh, that job was kind of cut out of a lot of people's life. Yeah, that's true. I remember I studied bookkeeping once, and I was very glad when we moved on to electronic bookkeeping because doing it on paper isn't fun. But thanks, Ravi. I mean, that's it's very different angles, you know, because obviously Dan, you're more on sort of the the non-PC bandwagon mm. to start with. I mean, obviously, Ravi, you're, you know, full-blown MS-DOS from day one. Yeah. Whereas, you know, me and Dan are on the, oh, stick with disking and the thing works. Well, well, that was the thing. So my dad had an Amiga upstairs in the attic, but I wasn't allowed in there because that was the serious machine because he did a, a fine art. He's a university lecturer. So he was, like, doing a lot of animation and stuff on there. But it was a 2000, a, a really early 2000. And... uh Later on, I got onto that machine, and then I, I, I dropped the Amstrad. You know, I was just like, "No, <laughs> get onto that." But uh, originally, my f- very first computer was that big desktop machine with the uh, lovely humming CRT and the really nice keyboard. Actually, yeah, really kind of mechanical keyboard. Which is surprising, considering it's Amstrad. I would have thought it would be just you know, like Papier Mac. Yeah, yeah. You can imagine Lord Sugar doing that, really. You know, anyway. <laughs> Fruits and apples. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it, do you think? Because, you know, we, as you, you obviously talk about, you know, the cutoff point for what, for what you guys look at in terms of retro is, you know, about year 2000. And I'd agree with that. I think anything after the 2000s, it's, I wouldn't even really call it retro. I, I, I don't think of the, you know, the PS3 and above as retro systems yet. Maybe for PS2, maybe for GameCube. But, and they were, what, 2002-ish? Yeah. 2001, I think both of those came out, yeah. And the Dreamcast was a bit earlier. That was 99. I, I'm starting to regard the 360 as retro, though. <laughs> like, oh. I, there's part of me which is like, I guess it's like memories and stuff like that. 
the cutoff for me is starting to move a bit. <laughs> well, that came out in what two thousand five, didn't it? So I mean, yeah, knocking on for twenty years. And I, I guess to be fair, you could uh, you're probably starting to consider the Wii as as retro as well now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, so it feels I, retro when you use it nowadays. <laughs> but do, do you know what? Out of all those systems, I don't know what it is, but we, for me, is at least it's it still retained a lot of its entertainment values. I can still have a, and we do have a lot of fun at family Christmas and stuff with we we sports balling. Even mm. though Nintendo Switch Sports is out, I haven't picked it up yet. The graphics don't really matter. Yeah, you know, I've got a friend who you know isn't into the retro scene and the reason he's not is he says oh i wouldn't want to play anything with such awful graphics and i don't get that because you know some of the most charming games have not you know because of the fact that we were on systems that just didn't have that horsepower you know i i i think that the wii was uh the the, the way that the wii really feels retro is you know Stuff like the 360 introduced online gaming and it all went online and, and we bought back the cooperative all in the living room playing. And I think that was an old style of playing that had kind of been lost and forgotten. And I think um, that that kind of co-op play and uh, making that the primary focus um, really gives it that kind of retro feel. Do you know what? I hadn't thought of that, but that's a really good point because, you know, when, you know, back in the day, I keep saying this, it makes all three of us sound really old and compared <laughs> with day. some of our listeners... In my day, oh, lad, get off, get off that lawn. Right. You know, we if we wanted to play games with a friend, we would have to have them come round. Um, you know, and they'd either bring their own controller or you'd have a spare. And I don't know about you, you two, but it, my friends would always get the cheaper controllers. Yeah, you'd always have the second-hand one or something, or the third-party one, and you'd have the official. Yeah, my brother would normally play with the uh, yeah the knockoff one. Yeah. <laughs> But, it, you know, bringing this together, and I remember so much of, like, you know, uh, having people actually bring around their PCs, you know, their Windows 95 PCs in the late 90s to play Command & Conquer over the network. Yeah. Well, we used to do it with um, Amiga 500s. My friend Ricky would bring his over, and we'd link them up with a null modem cable, and we'd play head-to-head Lotus Turbo Challenge 2. Because you could actually have, you know, with, with two separate TVs or two monitors, you could... um actually race each other using them and, and battle chess was another game yes yeah. um where you could actually yeah, have your own screen which obviously helped a lot for a game like chess um, but there were certain games yeah that we were networking god that must have been about 93 94 were we doing that yeah right i remember um we used to have a group called lan arena which were actually a company that would come in in nottingham into like areas like bars and stuff and they would set up huge lan games and you would be like playing Oh god, Unreal Tournament and stuff like that on the LAN. But we'd also be then all meeting up online and doing it. But I, I really think like Halo was the kind of one that people would all play together on split screen. Yeah. And then the Wii was like the real kind of cooperative ones. But after that it really really kind of got out of out of fashion and then the Wii just brought it back with a big you know, big hit straight away. So I want to ask you, what is it for for both of you? Obviously, we've grown up with those systems, but now we've all got much more modern computers. You know, we've got modern gaming systems. What is it for, and I'll start, we'll go in reverse order this time. I'll start with you, Ravi. What is it for you that makes you still want to keep going with those older systems and keep collecting and keep doing things with retro hardware and retro gaming? For me personally, it's like I, I do enjoy the kind of looking back and 
you know, getting the old fields and stuff, but it's really about pushing them to their limits. And, and that's because a lot of, I, I feel like they're lost systems or they're like lost architectures and it's a bit of a kind of lost knowledge. I, I and I understand it as well. So, you know, uh, like modern systems, I get them and, you know, there's a lot of issues, but you can just go onto Google and search for it and stuff. But it takes me back to those days where you had to learn a computer and you had to go, right, this didn't work with that. And, you you know, you'd make your mistakes. Even just the basic stuff of, like, sitting next to a CRT and, and turning that on and, and realizing that these displays are actually really amazing and something new, unique and they had that, like, warm kind of halogeny kind of feel where... um New machines don't have that. And even if I just show one of my little cousins, you know, a CRT, they think it looks great. And it's a, it's a real weird kind of human thing, I guess. And especially with like regards to the Amiga and pushing that. Um, and I've started working with PowerPC stuff as well and pushing that. I just, I just really think it's like it's a lost world or it's like a, a kind of a, 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 a different place that we haven't been uh, for a long time. And I like to go back to that place or, you know, I, I, I kind of feel comfortable there. Like I've, I've got the latest fast arm processor and all of this with the new Mac M1 and stuff. And I enjoy using it. I can get work done fast, but I don't want to fiddle with it as much as I do with the older stuff. And the older stuff is probably as expensive as the, the new machines. I feel I can get more hands on with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, there was more that you had to do for yourself and more you know, you had to understand. I, You know, I have a fond memory of me and my dad. We got in a book on Amiga DOS and we were actually going through Amiga DOS together. Yeah, and it felt like you were you were more focused on it and you were learning more. Like it was actually about a learning process and you're building a knowledge base where now you can just Google something, go on a forum, or that's how it's done. Do that, copy and paste a command boom you know and it like it kind of feels like you're missing out the kind of trial and error process of it because you you're right you go on youtube you go on google there's a tutorial for almost everything yeah someone has created some tutorial and ironically of course you know when we talk about retro computing and modding your systems well you know dan's partly responsible for those tutorials yeah yeah you know if i if I want to go and look up how what you know what Amiga accelerators are possible, and you know maybe things about the Pi Storm, well, Dan's videos come up. I I just used to remember that I'd have like we'd have limited resources, we have no connectivity to the internet, and it would be like I can't get this installer to work for the Amiga. So what would I do? I was really young, I didn't know. I'd search for all my discs, and I'd just find a version of the disc that I had hidden the installer files on it that was a one that worked with it and then i copy it over to my workbench and then suddenly i'm installing the software and it was that kind of process of just hitting it and like as, as people used to say like peeking and poking and kind of uh getting getting stuff working that way because uh, you know I'm, I'm already said to ravi we need to get him on to the show to discuss this in more detail but you know you've done a load of stuff in terms of music pushing old amiga hardware and other hardware to where it probably would have never gotten pushed back in the day yeah yeah and 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 that's what i love like the people now um the scene seems to be full of people really really pushing stuff like uh and just doing it for the fun of it as well it's not it's not to make money or huge 
things like that. It's like people are creating crazy games for old systems and like, you know, I saw the Commodore Pet playing video the other day and stuff. And it's like someone's just doing that for the sake of it and like uh, the kind of learning process. Yeah, no one's going to go out and buy a pet to watch YouTube. No. <laughs> yeah. But like the fact that you can do it is fantastic. And, you know, looking back at, you know, I looking back at all sorts of retro, not just computing, but, well, technically it's computing. I mean, someone in the RMC Retro Discord was selling their old Palm Pilot. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and do you know what? I nearly bought that. I thought I had, because I had a Palm. I had a Palm Tungsten T2. Admittedly, this, you know, this is, what, mid, no, this is early 2000s. This is, you know, around that point where, the very early handheld devices that again we look at now like the concept of a, a pda what's a pda we've all got smartphones that have got massively more power yeah and, and i think you're right and i and i think it's back then it was it was for the passion of it like um one thing that really interested me was the bbs ascii art scene oh yes and the rivalry between groups uh you know they would create that art for the sake of creating art and outdoing the other person it wouldn't be for clicks or it wouldn't be for you know to to make it popular or anything it'd just be like i've done this because i want to you know outdo this guy that's done that (laughs) it's just a real kind of like inventory kind of like tinkering kind of thing and 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 for the challenge and and that's what i really enjoy awesome and dan what about yourself i mean obviously you've been creating youtube content Particularly around the Amiga, but obviously other systems as well. Mm. I, I, I do have to ask you, by the way, how much penance did you do have to do after having an Acorn Archimedes in your possession? <laughs> yeah, that was a, it, it wasn't a cheap acquisition. Again, I think it kind of goes back to kind of what Ravi said in, in some ways for me. It's um, the fact that using these machines does kind of transport me back to being a kid again. I mean, you know, if I, if I boot up an Acorn Archimedes and I'm using Risk OS, then... You know, I feel like I'm 12 years old in the in the classroom at school again, using that. You know, playing Lander and stuff like that. We used to play on it, and uh, there's definitely a big element of that in there. And you know, using my Commodore Plus Four, playing the games I used to when I was seven, eight years old. You know, takes me back to those long, endless summer days with my friends over when I was a kid. And you know, there, there is definitely an element of that. But I think also there's a bit of a maybe a completionist kind of angle from me as well. For example, now I've got, you know, an Amiga 4000 and I've got an Amiga 3000 and a 2000. And, you know, these are machines that when I was a kid, I would see them in magazines and, you know, see the prices. I think the Amiga 4000 went for about two and a half thousand pounds in 1992 at its stock configuration. Always looked at them in magazines, never saw them in person and always kind of dreamed about owning one, you know, be there like, oh, one day. And, you know, it took 30 years for that day to come around, but I I finally got one about 10 years ago. So I think there's definitely an element of kind of the things I wanted when I was younger, I can now explore as well. But also, I mean, I've got some systems that I wasn't aware of and had no connection to when I was a kid. Like I got my hands on a uh, a Sinclair QL a couple of years ago, which was, um, it was meant to be like the, the serious computer from Sinclair aimed at small businesses and education mainly meant for like, you know, small office kind of productivity kind of stuff, was a complete failure. But I think there's also something quite interesting in those stories where technology failed as well. 
I've kind of got a bit of a maybe a morbid fascination in that too. I've got a lot of, you know, Philip CDI and Atari Jaguar and stuff like that. <laughs> All these systems where you know what, you know, a group of people put their heart and soul into that project for a good year or two, only for it to completely fail on the market and not to have a big user install base. And I think exploring those kind of systems is quite interesting too. And, you know, like Ravi said as well, kind of learning how they work. Because I was the same as, you know, both of you guys. I got, you know, books about learning Amiga DOS when I was a kid and I'd read them front to back. And even today, I mean, I kind of forgot it for a bit. But when I got back into the Amiga around like 2007, 2008, I suddenly all, all of it came back. It's like riding a you bike, know? isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Totally. I mean, at first I was a bit like, oh, oh yeah, Ed to edit the startup, add startup sequence. That's it. Yes. And it all came back. And now, you know, I can jump in to Amiga DOS and it's like, you know, like Ravi said, riding a bike. I, I think um, one thing that Dan does that that is really good is he goes beyond stock. So like he said, he'll fill up like that 4,000 with all the cards and have it running at the highest yeah. level, but get it all working. That's the key. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. uh, actually work finish bench. it. You know? <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, network cards in there, which is insane. No USB ports I've got on it now as well faster cpu you know i sometimes have it playing internet radio in the corner of my room which you know is something that you know it, it couldn't have done when it was new so i think i think there's definitely you know an element of kind of pushing it to its limits too and just using it sometimes i mean often i'll you know if i'm trying to write something um i've done a couple of articles recently and even doing my taxes you know obviously being self-employed tax returns are never a fun thing to do um and generally i really struggle to focus on doing stuff that i find really boring so if i'm trying to in excel and i'm trying to do my tax return in there suddenly i've got a facebook message in the corner on my mac yeah. oh, i'll check see who that is oh tweets come in i'll reply to that and i just completely lose focus on what i'm doing so often i will use you know I'll turn everything off maybe use my amiga 1200 that's not connected to the internet sit down for like a whole day on a saturday and do my accounts on that and then you know transfer that over to my mac to kind of sort it all out but there's definitely an element of that kind of isolation and just focusing on one mm. task that i like i i hadn't thought about that that's a really good point i've now got an image of, of dan handing in his tax return to the hmrc on a single on a double density because it would have been <laughs> high density double density floppy with a you know self-written label dan's taxes 2022 formatted in amiga dust <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the kind of thing when i first went around to dan's house and he had all this technology laid out i was like you've got it working. You've actually got that working and that bit actually works. Cause I, I'd always visit people and it would be like, Oh, well I've got this working on it, but that's broken. <laughs> that's broken. And Dan's really good at, um, you know, getting it all complete. And I'm the king of projects that haven't been finished. So it's uh, pretty admirable to kind of just see his stuff and be like, wow. Yeah. I've always kind of stressed out a bit if something isn't kind of in the state that I want it to be. Like even if my main PC breaks, you know, it ruins my day. And I'll, I'll literally, I'll, I won't do any Force work. Force yourself to I get it. I'll cancel appointment. I'll sit down until it's sorted. Yeah, otherwise I can't settle. Um, so I've always had kind of a, an element of that, I suppose. But also what you said, James, about, you know, you mentioned that, that PDA that you got. Um, I got an Apple Newton a few years ago because I remember playing with those in, you know, Ryman's Stationers when I was a kid and thinking yeah. how cool they were. And now that the fact that I can own one, you know, it's kind of a childhood dream kind of complete, even though not many people would want to own an Apple Newton either now or then, actually. I do have one question, of course. You've got a Newton. Mm. Did you 
did you ma- manage to write beat up Martin? <laughs> I think I did try that in my video actually, but yeah, I think it worked. Unfortunately, I have one of the uh, one of the slightly later Newtons. I think with the, the slightly corrected firmware, so it wasn't quite as bad as those original ones. But yeah, they, they weren't the best. But it is fascinating. You know, we we can now look at those devices and again look at the you know the successes, look at the failures, like the Sinclair, Sinclair QL. Look at the things that. You know, we can laugh about now to an extent, like how, you know, how cheesy maybe some old games are. But also, those, as you both said, those memories and, you know, using the systems for things that you might not expect. I mean, I remember, was it um, was it Wordsworth? I mean, you meet Yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah. I, rem- I have a fond memory of helping my friend's mum write a letter to her employer. For, I can't remember what it was for. Only it was her CV. And she wanted to make it look like she'd handwritten it. So I was like, oh, you can change the font. And, you know, like, why would you do that? But, yeah, because she wanted it handwritten, looking like it was handwritten, and in blue ink. Well, that's great, but you're printing it on a dot matrix printer. <laughs> that ain't going to look handwritten, <laughs> love. And so, all the fonts look identical as well. <laughs> yeah, right. Because, you know, again, going back to, you know, I, I still have a printer, but... I can guarantee you not many people actually still bother with having a printer. Mm. I've got a laser, but, you know, my early Amiga days were Citizen Swift. I think we have the 24. We had a colour Citizen Swift printer. I've actually got um, a guy that I'm going to go and pick two Citizen printers up off, uh, for free. He's actually given away his old old kind of accounts, printers and stuff. And uh, oh, I, wow. I, I used to love that carbon copy kind of paper where you'd have... Um, you know, you, you get two copies out of it. <laughs> I just thought that was awesome. With the kind of... I love the sound of dot matrices inside, as well. Yeah. That's, yeah, tractor feed paper. Even oh. the sound of a dot matrix, that takes me back to being at school again. I think we went to... Um, when we last moved house, and we, we went to the bank to get our mortgage approved. And they printed some stuff out on a dot matrix. Weirdly, wow. In Barclays. It's only about like four or five years ago. They still use it for some reason in there to print a certain document out but hearing the sound of it i was suddenly like god that takes me back it really and, and again it's as you say it's like transporting you back to your past or back or exploring systems that you heard about you know there are systems that i would love to play with now you know that maybe if i didn't experience like i experienced a bbc master that's what we had in primary school but you know, going back to things like the ZX Spectrum, I've never touched the ZX Spectrum, yeah. um, which is one of the reasons, you know, not to plug Neil too hard. I, you know, the royalty checks need to keep coming in here. But, you know, going down to somewhere like the cave or there's lots of wonderful retro computing museums. And that's the thing. It's, this isn't a small little group of people anymore. This is a big I don't want to say industry, but this is a big community. And I, I also think it's it is in the niche of people that are interested in that. Like, but the amount of people that I've either gone out with a drink with, or I've gone round to a meal and met other friends of people, and they've said, "Oh, what are you into?" And I talk about it, and suddenly they're telling me about, you know, oh, I used to remember this piece of technology that we had, had memories of this this game, and you know everybody's got in their head because it's it, it was all part of us you know everybody's got that kind of history and uh apart from the new the new people but a lot of the new kids and stuff they're doing what i was doing which was looking back at the stuff before me and and i think that's really interesting as well because uh when i was younger i'd be like studying 
all of the earlier computer systems as well when I really got into computing. And I think there's going to be a big audience of, of kids doing that. And that's going to continue. Like um, we had um, a, a guy on the podcast that said in the future, uh, AI is going to start studying retro computers because that's its, that's its birth. That's its kind of father. Mm. And that's, you know, the basis that it kind of, it started uh, on. So, yeah, I think it's always going to have an interest and, uh, yeah, really good stuff. And just imagining, like, Google's deep mind, you know, yeah. playing Manic Miner on a Spectrum emulator. Yeah, once artificial <laughs> intelligence becomes a thing, it's going to turn around and go, who was my father? And then it would look back and go, oh, the Spectrum, you know, early AI in games. Gosh, I'm j- I've just got this image now of Google going, what on earth is a BBC micro? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and find, finding old, was it the computer program, which is the series that accompanied the micro? The yeah. BBC? Yeah. A micro what, live came after it, didn't it? Just that's after. right. That's right. But I, again, like that's something you got just hot going back to what you talked about earlier about the British scene. There's so much of a British scene like the BBC micro that didn't really have an impact in the same way over in the States. And I think, who I can't remember who it was that was talking, it might have been LGR, but in the States, because, and I think I've mentioned this many times on the show, but because the States at the time was more affluent, it was more common to see floppy disks in the States. Most people had floppy disks, whereas over here, we were tape. Hmm. Floppy yeah. disks were not common until you started getting in. Would it be fair to say until like the VST and the Amiga made them, you know, built in? That's the first time I had a disk drive. Yeah, because I remember, yeah, it, on my plus four, it was cassette tapes. And my friends who had Amstrads and uh, Spectrums and that kind of thing. Yeah, all cassette tape based. And I think if you wanted to buy a disk drive for your Commodore sixty four, I've got a feeling they're about four hundred pounds you know, back in the late 80s. So it was, you know, more than the price of the machine often. I'd use them at school on the BBC Micros, but yeah, it really wasn't until I got my Amiga when I had, you know, an actual built-in floppy drive on it. I went to the um, computer, vintage uh, computer festival East in, a, in America recently in New Jersey, and uh, there wasn't uh, any cassette stuff there at all. It was, it was all very floppy-based, and uh, yeah, it was seen as a bit of a kind of oddity that people would be using uh, cassettes and uh yeah it was a total different kind of scene and it was very like the computing was very about um like less kind of garden shed fiddly and like um kind of you know just getting it working or or kind of bashing it together british style um (laughs) where the the american was very corporate kind of stuff and having uh you know big networks and, and and big machines and being a network administrator where in the UK, it seemed it was a lot of people with individual micros just trying to push them as much as possible. Although I do remember really wanting a floppy drive. And in my Plus Fours manual, there was a picture of a 1551 like floppy drive that was the drive that was made for that machine that, you know, were quite rare. But my dentist, weirdly enough, actually ran all of their accounts and reception on a Commodore Plus Four. And they had the floppy drive and they had a printer, they had the official monitor. And I'd go in, you know, waiting for my dentist department, looking at the the setup there in reception thinking, oh, God, I'd love to have that at home. You know, I'd all just like drool over it. And then one day I went in, probably around 1990, 91, and mounted me in one day, and the plus four had gone. And there was a, like a, yeah, probably an Amstrad PC or something there instead. And I remember saying to the dentist, like, oh, what, what happened to your, your Commodore setup? He went, oh, we replaced it with a PC. I said, oh, what did you do with it? He said, oh, we threw it on the skip. 
I was like, oh, I said, I would love that. He said, well, if you'd have asked for it, you could have had it. And I've kicked myself for 30. I mean, I've got the floppy drive in the printer and that now, but I had to wait a long time to to track some down. But oh, I went home and nearly cried after that as a kid. <laughs> oh, that's... And of course, back then, no one would have thought, oh, we should keep hold of this because no. one day it's it's going to be valuable. I mean, you know, I've said this many times. I think when we first chatted, Dan, um, I said, I wish but I, you know, if I could time travel, go back and say to my dad, hey, don't get rid of the 600. I've thrown machines out, you know, I threw, when I, when I went to university, I think I threw two Amiga 1200s in the bin and Amiga 500, you know, in the like, early 2000s this was, just because I thought I'm never going to use them again. Mm. And I thought, you know, and they weren't selling for, you know, they might go for a fiver in, in the local paper or something or an eBay, but there wasn't really any, any interest 20 years ago in them. No, it's only been probably, I mean, 1200 prices now, I'm like, how much and that's before you as we talked about that's before you start looking at any of the upgrades any of the accelerators so in in the aim to keep this episode under an hour to to really call itself retro in under an hour let's look at i guess one ask you both for first dan obviously we've all got our phone systems but what would you say in in your time sort of collecting retro and talking about retro what would you say is maybe your favorite or most oddball system that you've either been able to pick up or have had the privilege of, of using at some point uh well i've got you know i mentioned that the philips cdi before which i've always found a really interesting platform and that was kind of originally it wasn't meant to be a console it was like a home multimedia device and I remember seeing these around in the early 90s when that kind of, there was this market they predicted was going to be a massive thing. And Commodore had their platform, the CDTV, and Philips released a CDI. And the aim originally was that, you know, kids would use it for loading encyclopedias on the family TV on CD-ROM or looking at atlases and that kind of thing. And I remember seeing some demos and seeing like video running on the CDI and stuff as well as a kid, but they were very expensive. I think they retail for about 600 pounds. So I didn't actually own one of those, but we did. A friend of mine had a CDTV, which I used to borrow from him. I'd give him my Mega 500 for a couple of weeks, and I'd use a CDTV. Um, so I've always found those kind of that market that never emerged, because obviously, you know, that multimedia living room device market just didn't exist. No, no. And both of those machines lost, you know, billions for the parent companies. And I've done videos about both the CDTV and the CDI. So I think I've always kind of found that story quite interesting, you know, this this market that all these companies poured all their resources in. Mm. I think I read, you know, Philips, God, I can't, it was a colossal amount of money they lost on it. And they tried to make that, the CDI platform work until like the late 90s. And they kept it on the market for about eight years, lost billions on it. But I think, you know, no matter how hard they pushed it, there just wasn't a market there for it. So I think I do kind of find those two devices particularly interesting and they're quite niche as well, I imagine. Absolutely. And it's interesting, though, when we when we look to where we are today, where, you know, those multimedia platforms are in the living room, okay, you're not getting maybe the encyclopedias, but things like, you know, streaming video, TV, if you've got any sort of games console, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it the case that but the PlayStation 2 I always hold up as a great example of where games console had a almost a second life, in that people would buy PlayStation 2s not necessarily as a console, but as a more affordable DVD player. Yeah, it was cheaper than a standard DVD player. And I think the PS3 was the same. That was kind of the cheapest Blu-ray player on the market when that launched. Yeah, and and they were great devices. But now, you know, we look at, you know, we've got things like Apple TVs and Roku's. 
And, you know, when we look at, I don't know the last time I ever bought any sort of encyclopedia CD. I think, to be honest with you, I think the last time I ever had one was in Carter 95. Mm. And, but now we just watch YouTube for this stuff or go on Wikipedia. I think it's interesting to kind of trace where technology came from because, you know, stuff like Wikipedia probably wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for Encarta, you could say, you know, that kind of digital encyclopedia. And I mentioned the, um, you know, the Sinclair QL before, mm. and that's kind of got one claim to fame that Linus Torvalds had that as his first machine. Yes. And because there was barely any software on it, he started programming, and obviously that led to him creating Linux, which is now used everywhere around the world. So you could say that, you know, without the, the Sinclair QL... Linux probably wouldn't exist today. Which is fascinating. And, you know, just to back that up, you might not think it, but, you know, forget, don't think of Linux as just desktop Linux. The chances are your TV is running some form of Linux. Android is effectively based on on Linux. You know, most anything smart has probably got some form of a Linux underpinning. The, The server that's hosting this podcast now probably runs on Linux. Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, I I don't know who Squadcast host with, but it's probably a Linux-based OS, you know, because uh, Apache, just the impact it's had. And then, of course, you know, uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, wasn't he on a Next? Yeah, Nextcube, which again, you know, Steve Jobs' company that he set up after Apple, generally regarded as, you know, no one bought the machines, very niche, very expensive, regarded as a bit of a failure, but without that, the World Wide Web wouldn't exist and uh, probably Apple wouldn't exist today without next technology. Mac OS ten as we know it now, or just Mac OS, wouldn't exist without yeah. Next Step. Mm. So. It is Next Step pretty much. Yeah, well, yeah. That's, yeah. that's my kind of choice as well, like um, Apple, um, because I, I was into, I, I really got into the kind of Amiga Apple emulation because they, they shared a lot of stuff and you could, uh, I used to have a board called an M-Plant, which uh, was on the 2000 and you could have a, uh, Apple running on your Amiga and it actually ran a bit faster, but I never had the like original Macs and I've got into power PC stuff. I'm huge Apple fanboy. Everything around me is Apple at the moment, but I have <laughs> just got myself an Apple five, one, two K Macintosh. Oh, lovely. And I really want to kind of get into that world because they're just, you know, I saw them as kind of a very American thing. Um, a bit inferior because they were black and white. I was a bit prejudiced against them back in the day. But now looking at them, they're so beautiful. And you see what Apple's kind of done with its approach of software and um, the kind of walled garden approach um, that really works today. Uh, and it, and back then, you know, just as a design of them, uh, the style of them, it's just so nice. And, and that's one thing that I really want to get into. Uh, classic Apple and try and push them as much as I push the Amigas as well. There are some wonderful stuff, uh, things you can do. And in fact, I was talking in the episode before this one, talking with Dan Vincent uh, from uh, Userlandia. We were talking about some of the things like some of the, um, the SCSI options now. Uh, was it Blue SCSI? That's, that's one that's meant to be amazing, I've heard. Yeah, Blue SCSI and all sorts of mods that you can do to these classic Macs. Uh, Steve Jobs would probably spin his grave if you thought you'd modded a Mac because, <laughs> you know, but again, it's a, that's a whole world that, again, here in the UK, we probably didn't, Macs were not as accepted. You know, people say, oh, we, you know, when we talk to American guests, oh, we had iMacs in our classroom. Well, that's not what we experienced. I think all, probably all three of us at some point in our school career 
probably had either BBC Micros or Acorn, Acorn Archimedes. Yeah, definitely at school. Like my my uh, when I got to college, they had a, a Mac for audio production, and that was one of the digital audio ones. But that was that was much later on, and that was when there were all the colourful Macs and uh, stuff like that. The classic Mac range was completely alien to me. Um, it's like something from a foreign land and all really nicely designed with curves and stuff, you know. It's my, my auntie ran a print shop, um, a branch of Pronto Print, who are like a high street print shop. And I used a Mac there probably when I was about seven years old. And I remember that was the first time I'd ever used a computer mouse, you know, drew my name on, on the paint program. That kind of sticks in my mind. But yeah, after that, similar to what Ravi said then, it was, you know, the, the kind of G3, G4 Macs when... When I got to yeah college, it was, and we had like a, a multimedia room full of them. And I remember actually, I could go in there on like a weekend, and there was probably about like 20, 30 PowerPC Macs in there. I'd have the room to myself usually, so I'd have them all running Napster, downloading music on the weekend. That's generally what I did with them. But <laughs> so, you're, so you're the one who got the college all those uh, legal notices, right? Oh, yeah, then burning them all to a, a data CD and taking them home. So yeah, bolstered my music collection quite a bit that way. Oh, wow. The stuff that we owe to a lot of these companies, I mean, you know, I talked earlier about how Acorn, Ravi, that M1 Mac that you're using right now, you owe that, that oh, yeah. very existence of that to Acorn. And and you guys have chatted about Acorn and in this podcast, and that gives me the feels as well, because my whole entire primary school, it wasn't BBC Micros, it was Acorns, and then it was up to the uh, Acorns with CD-ROM as well and stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's a whole area that I've not dipped my toe back into. I really need to because I've not used Riscos in so long and that's i could tell that's going to be a big hit of nostalgia when i get back on it even that you can run that in a raspberry pi today cheating though isn't it <laughs> <laughs> well, again, well you know, like james yeah. said that you know the raspberry pi is a descendant of the acorn argument yeah, really. I, I, I just mean, want the old yeah. big machine to, you know <laughs> huge fans and stuff I can, I can see Ravi carting off a, a, an Acorn Archimedes back. And that's the other thing, of course, is as, as we wrap up is, what would you say to people who are interested in, in retro computing and want to start collecting but have no idea where to start? Is there any top tips either of you could give for people? Because, Dan, we've talked about you know how to collect Amigas, but what would you say maybe some golden rules for people in fanning the flames of your uh, retro passion? I would say go for stock. And then start from there, but also look on places like Facebook Marketplace. And like you also mentioned museums, go to a museum, try out stuff and see what you like, um, because they're going to have every machine. Uh, Some of the stuff that we've seen at um, shows and stuff just totally brings back memories. And when we first started doing this, you know, going to like video games events, I don't think we'd ever used a Neo Geo (laughs) before and stuff like that. And just seeing them and being able to sit down and play on them for a bit, um, then you kind of get a feel for it and stuff before you go out and invest and buy absolutely everything and all the latest speed upgrades, kind of just go for the stock, look on somewhere like Facebook marketplace that people aren't really going to, you know, be high selling it or might not have the the massive knowledge about it and then just pick something up and uh, have a play. Yeah, I think um, that's a really good way of doing it because I, I played, you know, first used the Sinclair QL at the Cambridge Centre for Computing History. So, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the first time I ever used one of those. And I used a Silicon Graphics workstation there as well, which is uh, something I'd really want in my collection, but they are ridiculously expensive and very big. So, yeah, going to museums, I mean, there's so many good ones all around the world now. 
where you can go and get hands-on with these machines. You know, they let you actually use them. And also, there's emulators as well. You know, if you think you're interested in the platform, there are emulators for pretty much anything. Even even in the browser. Like, there's a lot of emulators that are just browser-based, you know. Yeah, so you can get a kind of a feel for the system on there and maybe what the games or the software is like. So it might be a good way to kind of dip your toe in. And then there are really good Facebook groups and forums as well for pretty much any retro platform you can think of where so that's one of my favorite things about it i think as much as i love the memories and i love the machines i love the friendship aspect of it as well and you know there are like there are user groups all over the country now i mean ravi actually runs one here in nottingham the robin hood amiga group where you know every couple of months we kind of a bunch of us get together and show off our machines and new hardware and stuff we've got for it too so yeah look out for those communities as well because i think Definitely for me, one of the biggest draws to the retro scene is that community aspect and making friends as well. Absolutely. Because, you know, I've made so many good connections through the retro community, you know, and I, you know, I joke about paying Neil royalties, but the reality is I wouldn't have spoken to Ravi through Discord DMs if it hadn't been for being on RMC Retro. Mm. Uh, I think Dana reached out to you originally via Twitter, but obviously, you know, it's building those relationships and getting to know people. And and it is kind of like user groups as well, and it's that shared knowledge and excitement. So like Dan bought his... uh, CD32 and it wasn't working and uh, somebody uh Pillock actually uh yeah he's he's got the CD32 working and he's just done that uh, yeah. just just for the sake of it and it's like you're both really happy about it and it's like yeah achievement you know and that's what that kind of stuff was like and that's what RMC feels like as well like a, a kind of discord user group and what astound not astounds me but what always makes me smile is that you've not only got the people like us who were fans of those systems in there but you've got the people, some of the times you've got the people behind me, like, you know, my favourite example is uh, Mike Daly. Is it mm. Dan? Yeah. Who's, yeah. you know, the Lemmings, uh, uh, he's going to, if he ever meets me, he's going to hit me for calling this, the Lemmings guy. <laughs> but that's not, that's not. Uh, DMA or, Designs, you know, wasn't he, Mike Daly? Yeah. Yes, that's right. And, and yeah. GTA as well, yeah. Indeed, which, of course, people forget that GTA and Lemmings came from the same studio, which I still find hilarious. Anyway, gents, where can, where can people find the RetroArm? Where can people find you both on the social media platform things? Yeah, the RetroArm is on pretty much any podcast platform. If you just search for it in your, your app of choice, or um, you can ask your smart speaker. We're on those as well. Or you can uh, just go to our website, theretrohour.com. We both have YouTube channels as well. If you just search for Dan Wood in YouTube, you'll probably find me um, top of the list. Uh, yeah, you just search for Ravi Abbott as well, and you'll find me. But also, we've got like a Discord community ourselves, which is quite like a user group uh, that we're talking about. So you can come on there and just chat about your systems. And uh, we've got a patron community as well. And they're, they're really awesome. They're always like sharing technological advances that they've done with uh, older systems. It put us to shame, don't they, often? We're like, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, I glass them. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Some of their collections are like, wow. <laughs> and and that's, thank you both. And we'll put links, of course, to Retro and to to both Dan and Ravi's YouTubes and, and their Twitter on the episode notes. I just love this community. I love how interactive it is. And it's, you know, as I said before, Crosswise isn't explicitly a retro show, but some of my favorite recording times have been going back into that nostalgia. Uh, it's been fantastic. Yeah. So thank you. 
both for joining me. And again, Ravi, thank you for interrupting your ironing. Very much appreciated. <laughs> no, uh, no problem. I'll get back to it now. It's a bit cooler anyway. So. <laughs> Cheers, James. No problem at all. So, folks, you can follow us on Twitter, CrosswiresMG. Head over to crosswires.net for the show notes for this episode and all our other episodes. Go on, You can go and check out all the past episodes, including Dan's uh, chat with us about the Amiga. And, you know, if you're feeling adventurous, you can go and listen to Reese from Control Alt Reese talking about the Atari as well if, if that's your thing you know uh, you can email us podcast at crosswires.net and head over to crosswires.net forward slash youtube for our youtube channel there will be content coming soon in fact i this is the first episode I ever recorded on the focus right vocaster so there's definitely be go- going to be content coming up uh, coming up about that soon so do check it out until the next time thanks for listening bye bye <laughs>